raise your right hand. Do you solemnly swear to tell the truth, whole truth, and nothing but the truth? I want the truth! Why don't you answer him? We are back with another Objection Your Fiction. Objection Your Fiction. I'm Lee. I'm here with uh, my two California guys, Cooper and Tim McNutt. Introduce Tim in a second for another episode. Today, we're going to be talking about probably one of the most beloved movies of all time, The Shawshank Redemption. It's a movie that I know whenever I'm scrolling through cable, which isn't very often anymore, but when I do and it's on, I'll stop to watch it at least until the first commercial break. Here today to join us is Tim McNutt. Um, Tim is the director of Cornell's Cornell IR's Criminal Justice and Employment Initiative. Tim has a background as a city and state prosecutor. He uses that background as well as his background in litigation and policy to improve employment opportunities for people with criminal records by designing and delivering legal employment training to close information gaps implement best practices and integrate job seekers with criminal records into the workforce. Tim, very excited to have you on the program today. Lee, thanks for having me. Cooper, good to see you. Uh, I'm excited to dive into Shawshank Redemption, maybe a little bit about Cornell ILR's Criminal Justice and Employment Initiative. Uh, That's okay. We we, we could pass on that. But Lee, we need like, I need about 10 minutes and I can really, you know, give you the full scoop. Keep it, keep it to 20 minutes. Now, we do want to hear about the, the program. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what, uh, what ILR, Criminal Justice, does? Yeah, essentially, the ILR school formed in 1945 was really meant to improve the workplace. One glaring issue was uh, people with criminal records and their ability to enter the workforce, achieve economic advancement. This is not a small problem. There's 70 million Americans with some kind of a criminal record. The American Bar Association estimates that they face over 40,000 barriers. Um, and after one year of release, 60% unemployment. So it's a, it's a really big issue. We formed this initiative in 2018 to try and address it really from a, a legal perspective so that people who are reentering society know their rights. Um, but then also employers know what their obligations are so that we can have uh, uh, expand the talent pool, include workers with criminal records and um, really make sure that they have an opportunity uh, to, to make the transition. I think the Shawshank Redemption characters are going to be a great way to take a look at that issue, Lee. So before we dive into the meaty issues present in Shawshank Redemption, I wanted to do our typical two-minute overview of the plot. Cooper's going to try to do a slightly better job than he did with my cousin Vinny. So, I thought I crushed my cousin Vinny. I missed uh, one. I'm going to check. I'm going to check. It was, a, it was a mediocre performance at best. Let's see if you can improve upon it. I feel like I feel like if anyone has not seen Shawshank Redemption, they should not be listening to this podcast. They should they should turn the podcast off and go watch Shawshank Redemption because it's uh, it, it is such a classic. It is one of my favorite films of all time. Um, interestingly, you know, do you know it? Do you know I was just I just pulled it up because it didn't win Best Picture, even though it's like one of my favorite movies, one of the best movies of all time. You know what did in 1994 win Best Picture that year? What it went up against? 1994. Another another real classic. It wasn't Schindler's List, right? No, that was 93, I think. Yeah, I hope there's not a fact check on this. Forrest, it, it went up against Forrest Gump. Oh, uh, no, that's a tough one. That's tough. Yeah, tough year. That is quite Forrest a class. Gump, Four Weddings and a Funeral, Pulp Fiction, and Shawshank Redemption all in one year. Good year. 
And I don't even think, I don't think any of the actors won. I don't think it won anything. I think it's like, I think because, because Tom Hanks. I think Morgan Freeman won Best Supporting. That could be right. I don't know. Anyway. uh, You're you're trying to avoid. I'm just trying to to filibuster and just avoid having to, (laughs) avoid having to do the summary. All right. First, so for people who haven't seen Shawshank Redemption in a while, since everyone has seen it, give us the two minute overview. Connor is going to put two minutes on the clock starting now. All right. So Shawshank Redemption, basic plot points are Andy Dufresne is wrongfully convicted of murdering his wife and um, the golf pro who she is sleeping with. Hold on. Was he wrongfully convicted? Let's talk about this for a second. Yes. He's, he, do you think that he definitely was wrongfully convicted? I mean, otherwise, my whole my whole view of this movie is going to completely change because I've always I've always just assumed he was wrongfully convicted. I mean, there's, he it, it would be very odd that someone else would have killed his wife in the golf pro, right? And that doesn't he make was, a whole, he make was a whole lot of sense. Anyway, I mean, heat of passion, maybe he was drunk, so maybe he should have been he should have been uh, let off for that. Um, anyway, so Andy Andy ends up uh, being convicted of murder. Um, serving two life sentences. He gets sent to the Shawshank prison. Um, he is immediately like thrown into prison life and he is uh, sexually assaulted, um, having a really hard time there. Ultimately, because he's savvy and smart, he befriends the the guards, kind of understand that he's He's a former banker and an accountant, and so they start um, using him for for all of that. He does starts doing all the taxes for the for the guards, and the warden ultimately learns of this skill set that he has, um, and so he kind of occupies a very favorable place in the prison. Um, everyone starts looking after him. He makes friends with Red, who's Morgan Freeman's character. Um, he's in prison. I, I forget how long he's actually in prison for, but 17 years, 19, 19 years, 19 years. Um, during this whole time period, he is slowly devising a escape plan. Um, he slowly famously has the Rita Hayworth poster in his, in his cell, which is covering up a, um, hole that he's been digging out of the prison, um, for, 10, 15, 17 years, however long uh, he he was in there for um, walking around the yard and scattering all the all the dirt from the wall. So every night he would just stay up and 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 dig the hole. Um, question: I mean, it's it's insane that they would never that no one would ever discover that hole that he would be able to dig it for that long. But that's one of those plot points that you just overlook. Um, anyway, he ultimately escapes. He spent years building trust with the warden and the guards, such that they wouldn't have even thought that he would be using the poster as his escape path. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, he, he ultimately escapes. Um, he is then able to, when he escapes, because he know he has all this dirt on the prison, he and the warden, he is able to go and send, he, he escapes with all this uh, incriminating evidence about all the wrongdoing that the, the warden has been doing and money laundering and all sorts of things. So he... He is able to get the warden or send it to a newspaper. And at the end of the movie, the warden is, um, he kills himself and the the cops show up to arrest all of them. Um, Other major plot points, Morgan Freeman, his friend, ultimately is let out on parole. 
Uh, and then he famously meets Andy at the last scene of the movie in Say Wataneo. Um, uh, yeah, and I'm, I'm kind of rambling, but that's those are the those are the broad the broad plot points. Again, if you have really to keep that in in two minutes, was that under two minutes? No, that was like four minutes. <laughs> and you spent about thirty seconds talking about the consequences for the warden. I thought you were actually going to end the movie on the warden's death, which would have been an interesting way to to frame the ending of that film. So anyway, we're going to come back and talk about uh, in a little more detail the characters in Shawshank Redemption. Before we do, um, I wanted to first, really quickly, because Tim, you're, you're a former prosecutor. We, uh, we used to work together at the Attorney General's office a long time ago. I wanted to just talk through the evidence against Andy. We only get like kind of a snapshot into the, into the case against him. I want to talk, one, about the evidence, and two, a little bit about the prosecutor's cross-examination style here. So we're going to play the clip from the trial and talk about it for a few minutes and then we'll move on to the employment issues that are implicated in this movie. Mr. Dufresne, describe the confrontation you had with your wife the night that she was murdered. It was very bitter. She said she was glad I knew that she hated all the sneaking around. And she said she wanted a divorce in Reno. What was your response? I told her I would not grant one. I'll see you in hell before I see you in Reno. Those were the words you used, Mr. Dufresne, according to the testimony of your neighbors. If they say so. I really don't remember. I was upset. What happened after you argued with your wife? She packed a bag. She packed a bag to go and stay with Mr. Quentin. Glenn Quentin. <laughs> Golf pro at the Snowden Hills Country Club. The man you had recently discovered was your wife's lover. Did you follow her? Went to a few bars first. Later, I drove to his house to confront them. They weren't home, so I parked in the turnout and waited. With what intention? I'm not sure. I was confused, uh, drunk. I think... Mostly I wanted to scare them. When they arrived, you went up to the house and murdered them. No. I was sobering up. I got back in the car and I drove home to sleep it off. Along the way, I stopped and I threw my gun into the Royal River. I feel I've been very clear on this point. Well, we I get <laughs> hazy is where the cleaning woman shows up the following morning and finds your wife in bed with her lover riddled with 38 caliber bullets. So, first off, what kind of defense prep was there for Andy when he took the witness stand. Why? Lee, why is he on the stand what? in the first place? He just handed the prosecutor three quarters of his case. Why is he on the stand? I, I think in listening to that clip, Cooper, you might understand why I have some reservations about Andy's innocence. Because first off, he sounds like a sociopath. The way that he's testifying is... Immediately, you're like, this guy, this guy definitely killed her. And uh, and it seems like there's way too many coincidences for it to make sense that anybody else did it. Until yeah. we meet, until we meet Tommy and he's cellmates with Elmo Blatchley, right? The mysterious uh, killer. 
Yeah, which we get no information about until midway through. And he, by the way, speaking of uh, looking like a killer, Elmo Blatchley does a good job of looking like someone who might, you know, they're going to make that jump. Yeah, Elmo Blatchley is like half covered in darkness also. And he had, you could just see like the yellow teeth emerging through the That's black. That's why you know he did it. It was the teeth, you know. That's- so you always know by the teeth. So what do you think, just generally speaking, about the evidence against Andy? If if uh, you were the defense attorney in this case, how would you have structured your defense? Lee, what do we have here? We have bullets, right, on the ground outside the car. We've got, obviously, all of his statements, putting him at the scene, outside the house, establishing uh a motive there, I guess, not an element of, of, of the crime, but at least we have a sense of kind of the heat of passion, as you say. Is What else What else am I missing? What, did they have other things linking him? No, I think it's mostly his statement that they have linking him, which he appears to, instead of be rejecting by like coercion or misinterpretation, he's taking the witness in and actively reasserting all of the bad things that he must have said to the police in order for them to arrest him in the first place. And this is 1947. Is that something like that? So what I was curious about is the bullets they find outside the car and the bullets in the bodies of the victims. You know, I'm assuming there's no way to match those in any kind of sophisticated way. I don't know in 1947, but that would be obviously the, the best way to you know, prepare a defense is to, to prove those bullets aren't even the bullets, you know, uh, in the weapon, the murder weapon. Yeah. I mean, in 2023, this Andy would never have been arrested because it sounds like if we believe that, that this actual killer did it, he must've left DNA all over the house. And it doesn't sound like he was very careful. Andy doesn't even really remember what was going on. So he wasn't careful either. I think, I think, we wouldn't be in this predicament in 2023. Is that fair to say? I think so. All right. So um, I want to talk about the uh, the different characters and what their, I guess, what their employment prospects would be like, how employers would view them coming out of prison. We're going to probably have to take some liberties here because, you know, we have three um, <clears throat> kind of brutal killers. Uh but there's different um, variables that factor into each one. Yeah, Lee, can, I just frame, can I just frame this a little bit? I think we're making the shift between, okay, you know, the evidence in the case, uh, being convicted, having a prison sentence, and now we're really trying to look at the aftermath, right? The collateral consequences of having a record. What does that look like for somebody? What are their prospects for jobs? How do they reenter? Um, what are our laws that either inhibit that or, or, and I think just if I could, just generally what I found in the training that I've done with Cornell and, and working with the different stakeholders is we tend to basically take a criminal record and conflate it with character. So if you have a criminal record, you're bad. And therefore you can't access housing, you can't access employment, healthcare is a challenge. Um, kind of leading back to all those statistics I said about how hard it is for somebody to, to make a change. I thought Brooks, really sympathetic character, highlighted how difficult it is to make that transition. You know, he comes out, he's in a halfway house, he's bagging groceries. We don't know what his job skills are, but 
pretty much the only possible uh, job he could maybe find. Um, it's a really bleak prospect affecting millions of Americans across the country. I don't think it's so different from what we saw with Brooks, and we know how that ended uh, really sadly. And I think it really comes down to largely, are we doing an individualized assessment of people and what their skills are? Or are we just saying, you have a criminal record and you're bad? And that kind of gets me to the Green case, Lee, that we were talking about. Um, it's a Missouri case, a guy named Buck Green. Uh, he was applying for a job to work on the railroad. He had a conviction for um, uh, abstention from or, or not doing military service. And the Missouri Pacific Railroad basically said, we don't hire anybody with a criminal conviction. We just have a blanket policy. Long story short, that was overturned. They found that it had a disparate impact on, on uh, communities of color because of uh, incarceration rates. And what they outlined was, okay, instead of having a blanket ban, you have to have a business case, a business necessity for denying someone a job based on a criminal record. And they started to list some factors, what kind of individualized assessment one has to go through if they're going to deny someone a job for a criminal record. And they make pretty good sense. Namely, like how long has it been since the conviction? Um, how serious is the offense? Um, and then what are the job duties? Since that case in 1970, other states have elaborated and they've said, why don't you look at how old was the person when they committed the crime? What steps have they taken to rehabilitate? And maybe most importantly, what does the conviction have to do with the job that person is seeking? That's called the direct relationship test. So all to say, we've um, come up with some laws to try to combat this problem of, of low unemployment um, and, and try to reduce discrimination. So I think that's sort of a good context to start looking at the characters. That was very long-windedly. Did I lose everybody in the audience? We can edit that, right? We have one listener. We still have, My mom is still listening. Okay, good. Uh, no, I think I think that's a really important background and um, a good way to smack me upside the head when I'm starting with. We have three really brutal killers here. Let's look at them from an employment context. So I, I kind of um, was doing the opposite of what employers should be doing in terms of assessing, uh, you know, those who've been convicted of crimes in the past and how, how they should be looked at. You started with red. Um, and I wanted to dive into him a little bit more. I guess my first question is, we talked about seriousness of crime. And, and just broadly speaking, again, because we are dealing with characters in this movie who were convicted of murder. Is that, um, is that in your experience, kind of a disqualifying crime? Not just, you know, homicide, manslaughter. Um, are those really difficult crimes for employers to grapple with? And are you seeing a difference between those types of crimes and other types of crimes? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, seriousness of the offense, let's say in New York, for example, and by the way, state by state, these laws vary widely. That's why it was interesting to note that I think Shawshank is in Maine. So if we were really going to represent, let's say, red, we would be looking at what are the main laws? How are we going to navigate the employment um, field in Maine? But just giving another example, New York. Um, Let's dive deep into Maine employment law. That's really what I'd like to do. I, all I can tell you is they have a ban the box law. And um, basically, you cannot ask about a criminal conviction on an application in Maine 
but you can ask about a criminal conviction in an interview. In New York City, by contrast, you cannot ask about a criminal record until a conditional offer is made, just to give you how a sense of how these things vary state by state. But New York's an easy thing to look at. And I'll just, to your point about seriousness of the offense, in New York, for example, that is one of eight factors. So that's a tough one to get over, but it's a weighing test. It's a balancing test. So no one element factor can be dispositive of the issue. So that's what I try to focus on when you have somebody who has a A felony, B felony, violent felony, uh, a big hurdle to overcome. But maybe they were young at the time of the conviction. Maybe they demonstrated all kinds of uh, skills and rehabilitation. Um, You know, there's other ways to offset that. But to answer your question, yeah, it's harder. It's harder if you have a serious offense. So I guess if you were advising Red and he, by the way, I think, you know, you mentioned that uh, Red might only be qualified for this supermarket job, but I think they do go, they do take pains to say that he's one of the few guys who's educated there. He's obviously running the library. Are you talking about Brooks or Brooks? Not right. Brooks, Brooks, not right. Yeah. Brooks. Sorry, Brooks. Um, Brooks is educated. He's in charge of the library. So he might actually be in a more, uh, in a better position leaving the facility than other inmates. But if you were advising Brooks, and he was applying for jobs. And the idea was, okay, they, they might get to the conditional offer, but they're going to find out that you killed your wife and daughter 50 years ago, which is what he did in the movie. How would you consult with him to handle that objection? You know, What would be the right approach from his perspective to respond to the employer when they bring that up? I think that's a great question. I think one of the first things... I'd want to work with Brooks on is how to highlight his skills and present himself to an employer in the most favorable light. One big challenge, and it's called the prison credential dilemma, is there's no great way to quantify or log all the skills, things that you might have learned in prison, things that don't fall into that nice, pretty resume category of what was your three prior jobs and what college or school did you go to? So for folks who don't have some of those privileges, um, there's something called a restorative record. This is a shameless plug, Lee, that we're creating at ILR school. And what that does is log things like um, micro-credentials, maybe courses taken, um, skills, certificates, uh, even things earned in prison that really show the employability of someone, not looking at their character. So I think the first thing is to present oneself and those favorable, like focusing on the job duties that the, the employer is asking for. Um, the second thing is just be prepared. You have to have uh, what they call an elevator pitch about when that question comes up. 90% of employers do a background check, so they're going to know about a criminal history. And how do you respond? A lot of employers want to hear a candidate accept full responsibility. They move forward with their life. Um, They are looking for work to support themselves and their family, and then very quickly going to what skills they have for the job. I think that's always the trick is trying to uh, keep the conversation on what are the duties for the job, because that's ultimately what an employer should be looking at. So Brooks, for instance, might want to highlight his knot tying micro skills that he picked up in. Yeah, he, he wants to, you know, make sure he highlights his e Cornell, you know, 
college credits that he took online while incarcerated. You know, no, but I mean, his library, you know, but like you said, he worked in the library. Uh, perhaps he pursued some kind of education. We saw other characters in the film do that. And so you want that one that needs to be documented. Are we are we supposed to assume in the movie that um, there 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 does sort of seem to be some kind of like re-entry program that exists here, right? Like everyone that Brooks and Red are both ending up at the same supermarket, living in the same place, right? They're and that's not just a coincidence, right? It's it's something is happening where the prison is is connecting them with this with this employer, putting them up in in a in a house, right? Yeah, and there typically tends to be like a network of either nonprofits, community organizations, some focused on workforce development, some focused on access to housing. And that's critical to successful reentry. Cooper, to your point, is like making the problem is it's very hard to find everybody. Everybody works in silos. Um, you know, there's not a lot of coordination among all the services, but that would be the first step, right, is to try to get help and seek it out and, and do it. I guess for Brooks and for Red, the length of time from conviction is both a blessing and a curse. A blessing in that it's, I'm sure, positive from, uh, you know, uh, the green factor analysis, 40 years for Red, 50 years for Brooks, but they're also o older uh, and maybe the job pool has shrunk as a result of that. So do you find different challenges for older, um, you know, recently released convicted felons versus younger? Do, do you, does Cornell uh, advise differently depending on age? Yeah, it's hard to really pinpoint a distinction in the workplace, but both groups, let's say young people and older people have certain advantages or disadvantages when it comes to the law. For younger people, for example, the, raw, the law actually recognizes that basically we do stupid things when we're young. And there's a good research that shows we age out of crime, more or less, that if you as the older we get, the less likely we are to reoffend. So in that case, um, somebody who's younger benefits from that part of the law. In terms of older uh, folks, I think typically that you tend to see a larger gap between the time of conviction and where they currently are. So there's some advantage there when we're looking at the factors that we talked about. But like everything, I think the key is um, an individualized assessment. That's what we're constantly advocating for. Let's just look at this individual, their particular circumstances, and the job they're applying for. And just to go back to your earlier question, like one of the most important strategic skills to learn is what jobs to apply for and what jobs not to apply for. If you have lots of burglaries, uh, driving a UPS truck is probably not the right way to go. Similarly, if you have a lot of drug convictions, a pharmacy isn't going to be the route you want to take because of that direct relationship test. But there's hundreds of other jobs that have nothing to do with the conviction you have. And that's, that's really the best advice in terms of someone seeking employment. And employers looking at candidates, right? Does this conviction have anything to do with what we need this individual to do at our workplace? How do you think, I mean, obviously Andy Dufresne escapes from prison, um, but how do you think someone in Andy's position, if Andy were to have been released on parole, 
um, and and try to go back and look for a job in the banking sector, or accounting sector. Um, how do you? What, what's your gut on how that process would play out, and how would that compare to the reentry process for someone like Red or Brooks? Yeah, it's so tricky, Cooper. I thought about this a lot in Andy's case. Let's say he is innocent, right? He wasn't convicted. He's going to want to share that. He's going to want to say on his behalf, like, I have this conviction, but I didn't do it. The problem is no employer wants to reopen a case, has any interest in, you know, what the uh, underlying circumstances are. They just see a conviction from the background check and they have to deal with it. So that's a real conundrum for somebody like Andy, who, you know, understandably wants to say, listen, like this sounds terrible, but it's not the time. An interview process, the hiring process isn't the time to try to litigate your case. So he, it's, a t- it's a tough, tough problem. What about the uh, money laundering crimes that he engages in while in prison? How would that factor into the? Yeah, I wouldn't. I'd say banking and finance are are out of the question. He's probably going to have to find a new a new uh, career path. Not only does he money launder, he then steals the money that he's laundered after he escapes from prison. Arguably, the various crimes that he commits after let's say let's assume that he's that he didn't do it, which I which I do have some doubt about after rewatching this movie again. With a with a more critical eye, can I can I pause you there, Lee? What do you make of our friend Elmo Blatchley? Then let's say he is, let's say Andy's guilty. Okay, what what is the deal with Elmo? Why show him in such a dark light with the the teeth? What's the? Yeah, so I I think, look, Warden's not a nice guy, right? I think I think it's clear that he's the villain of the story. But there might be a little truth to what he says about Tommy trying to impress Andy. I think more so, though, Tommy's words before he reveals what it's Elmo Blatch. I think so. Is that right? Tommy says that Elmo likes to talk a lot. He talks about everything. Nothing's really believable because he jumps a mile if someone does something. Him. So Tommy kind of was incredulous as to whether or not he could actually kill somebody. And it seems like he's more a bragger. And my thought there is maybe he read about this in the news. I'm guessing this was like a very public trial, big deal, right? Bank, double murder, rich person. It seemed like the only educated guy who actually was in Shawshank. So it doesn't seem like a lot of educated people were ending up in, in maximum security prisons. So maybe he just brags about it as uh, he did it with the difference, you know, no, nothing's going to ever happen as a result of me bragging about it. There's a reason why that, that dialogue's in there, that he's a, a big talker. Anyway, um, I think I've made my case. I still think he's innocent because he, you, need to, you need to go by the text of the movie and the movie, I think, wants you to believe that he's innocent. But it's an interesting... It's interesting to obviously. watch it again. Assuming he's guilty, I think that that's a that would be an interesting endeavor. So I, I actually am though. Uh, I want I want to follow up on the conversation about Andy and how he would approach interviews. Let's suppose for a second that that the warden doesn't have Tommy shot. He gets a new trial. He's acquitted at the new trial. He's now been in prison for twenty years. There's all this bad press about him killing his wife and and um, golf pro or tennis pro, whatever it was. 
that poses its own set of challenges for interviews, right? And and trying to get employed. So is that um, something that the law has taken into consideration, you know, false accusations, later in life innocence? I mean, we have all these DNA innocent reversals. Those people are trying to get jobs too. It's just like the internet, you know, you go on, you go on Google, you search for somebody and it doesn't go away. So how, how should he, let's assume that he was acquitted. How would he approach the interview process from that perspective? Yeah, that's a great question. That's coming up a lot too, with the passage of all these expungement and sealing laws. And in New York, we're seeing something called the clean slate law. And that's the same question I get all the time. It's like, okay, well, technically my record's been cleared but it's all over the internet and people know, and therefore, you know, my, my job prospects are going to be really harmed by this. I believe the fair credit reporting act and I, and I need to research this more, but I believe it does make it illegal for an employer to Google search criminal history information for a job candidate. So now, that may be the law in the books. It might be illegal, even discouraged. Does it happen? Of course it happens. But my message is more that if you're an employer, I'd be very careful about doing that. And, and frankly, I, I, I think it may not be uh, appropriate at all for the hiring process. That doesn't resolve the issue, but I think just to have a sense of what uh, the law states is important, um, that, that that's not permitted in the hiring process. Tim, how, how would you sort of uh, compare the, I mean, a, a big piece of this movie is just kind of the the emotional um, re-entry process, not even the employment perspective, right? Like obviously when when Brooks gets let out, he, he, he struggles to re-enter society and, and he misses prison, right? He misses the, the community that he had there and um, the, 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 you know, he had a purpose there, he had a place there, and then he comes out. Um, how would you, how do you think the movie portrays that? Obviously it's a different time. It's a different place. It's fictional, but is that something that you frequently encounter and hear about and see that people, you know, struggle, um, struggle with that process in, in a similar way? Or do you think that, that prison jail life is, is, is much harsher and crueler now so that people are just so relieved to be out that that doesn't exist? I'm just kind of wondering what your overall impressions are on that kind of theme in the movie. Yeah, no, I mean, I think what's so powerful about the movie is the way it humanizes the people that are so often kind of othered, if you will. Like there's this general thing that we do in society, which is involvement in the criminal legal system. You're a bad person, should be punished. Um, and I, what I love about this movie is it really, you know, makes these human, you know, and I think that's the biggest uh, path forward, really, when we're trying to tackle this issue. And a lot of my training is myth busting, right? Uh, workers with criminal records, the data shows actually stay on the job longer, have fewer incidents at the workplace, um, are promoted faster. And that's just contrary to a general perception that folks have, who typically also hear a criminal record, and they immediately go to the worst crime, they think murder, they think rape, the reality is 80% of crime is nonviolent, uh, low level offenses. Um, so all to say, I just think humanizing is so critical to sort of uh, progress in, in this area. And this movie does a great job, I think, of, of showing the, the full side of somebody. 
yeah, the movie really takes pains to humanize Boggs. So by the time he's wheelchaired out yeah. and is, is eating food through a straw, we really care about him as a character. Would you would you hire Boggs, Tim? Remind me which which one is Boggs? He's the head of the sisters who brutalizes. Oh, yeah. That's tough. You know, there's a job for everybody, Lee. There's a job for everybody. I don't know exactly what that guy would be doing, but maybe not around a lot of people. Maybe there's a warehouse somewhere, very quiet, deep in a corner where somebody could be packing a box, keeping to themselves, earn a living. Keeping to yourself, earning a living sounds like the current, the entire job force now. So maybe he could do anything. Yeah, Zoom, yeah. So I wanted to... You mentioned before a little bit about, I guess, one of the handling employer objections, taking accountability. I want to play Red's speech to the parole board at the end of the movie. And I want you to assess for me how that ranks in terms of responding to an employer objection. Please sit down. Ellis Boyd Redding, your files say you've served 40 years of a life sentence. You feel you've been rehabilitated? Rehabilitated? Well, now, let me see. You know, I don't have any idea what that means. Well, it means you're ready to rejoin society. I know what you think it means, Sonny. To me, it's just a made-up word. A politician's word, so that young fellows like yourself can wear a suit and a tie and have a job. What do you really want to know? Am I sorry for what I did? Well, I There's not a day goes by I don't feel regret. Not because I'm in here, because you think I should. I look back on the way I was then, a young stupid kid who committed that terrible crime. I want to talk to him. I want to try to talk some sense to him. Tell him the way things are. But I can't. That kid's long gone. This old man is all that's left. So, one to ten, one being the, the worst handling of the employer objection, ten being the best, how would you how would you quantify Red's uh, answer there? Cool. Lee, I still need to take a minute when I hear that. It is powerful acting. And if we were to watch, I think it was that number three that we saw in this film. I think there was the first two where mm-hmm. he said the same. I, I just want to make a note. I am no expert, but the nuance of the first one, only 10 years having been incarcerated, and the second one, I think it was 20 years in, that it was the same um, the same script, the same language, but the way Morgan Freeman delivers it has that nuance of being incarcerated for 10. I just, it is brilliant. I mean, it is just so powerful. So that does not answer your question, Lee. That's and okay. I, I, I think it's a great point. I just, it's just, I still am so moved by how you see the trajectory of, of being in that kind of sort of inhumane condition. But this is a tough one. I'll tell you, um, we have experts that are trauma-informed care experts at Cornell um, that do a lot of advising on this topic. Because for me to say, 
go in there, talk to an employer, take full responsibility, tell them you're moving forward and you're a great worker. You know, we're learning that it's kind of like saying, hi, my name is Tim. I'd like a job. By the way, here's the worst thing I ever did in my life. And we're talking about a high stakes, high stress scenario, like just a job application for anybody, record or not. And then for people with a criminal record, we just put this unique burden. And I'm not saying it's not, you know, called for and justified. That's part of the hiring process. But it is a really tall order for somebody to be ready for a job interview and then divulge in the way they feel most comfortable with the worst thing that ever happened in their life to a complete stranger. So I guess more of my comment on that piece is like, this is a really difficult challenge. The burden and onus is completely on the individual with a criminal record. And I just want to stress that I, there's some sense, and Lee, maybe you felt this as a prosecutor, but when you are arrested for a crime, you're convicted, you do your jail sentence, you are on probation or parole, you finish your obligation to the state. Isn't the debt paid? You know, ha ha haven't, isn't there some sense of like, okay, that was the social contract that we have. But in reality, we have a perpetual punishment system that follows somebody for their entire life. And um, I think it's moments like these that make me think about that. So you alluded to it before too. It's like with the internet, it's even it's even longer and harder, right? Like the that that is not the internet record is not a piece of this movie, but that's a whole nother piece that has to be considered now. Yeah, it lives forever. I, I, I did want to speak to this piece, this 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 speech by Red one more time and just give my two cents on it, which is so the first two times that he comes in, it's a script, right? And you're right. The performances differ a little bit, but it's the same script. It's probably a script that's circulating the, the jail and that everybody is giving in their interviews and it has no impact. The third time, even though he's a little disrespectful, uh, he, he's not really answering the question they the way they want to answer it. He's honest. He's authentic yeah. himself. And I think that, and I don't, you know, I'm not the expert in this, Tim, and you can tell me if this is right, wrong, or somewhere in between, but I think that probably is good advice for, um, for people looking for a job who have been, who have had a difficult situation in their past, whether it's a conviction, an arrest, whatever. Employers, speaking as somebody who is an employer, they want authentic people working for them. They want honest people working for them. At the end of the day, what you've done in the past maybe can be accounted for, but if they don't trust you, they don't think you're being real, far more difficult to get hired. Yeah. And I think to your point, like never say something that doesn't feel genuine and authentic. The good news is um, the stigma around this topic has changed dramatically, even in the last three or four years. So employers are open to hire. We see second chance pledges from Fortune 500 companies, uh, real DE&I efforts to expand the hiring pool to include people with criminal records. Lots of employers out there themselves have criminal records looking to hire folks who also have criminal. So I'll just say, I think there is a lot of uh, hope going forward and a lot of opportunities available. But uh, to your point, yeah, having making something true to yourself, you know, I think is really is key. It's interesting because we just watched My Cousin Vinny and we were talking about how 
whether or not that's like a good a good model for law students and and lawyers early in their career to follow. And I think the only takeaway from that was ultimately like what he does well. He, he he's terrible in preparation, but he's like he's authentic. He's real. He like you know prosecutes the case and or, or defends the case in the way that that feels very authentic to like his style and doesn't try and be someone that he's not. Um, I think the lesson the lesson is the same here in many ways. And maybe also don't don't cut the brakes on your wife's car, and then you won't have to make the emergency. I think that's sound advice. I think that's sound advice. Yeah. What's the What's the um? I I forget the closing segment that we have, Lee, which is evaluating. I don't know if you have further questions, but evaluating the authenticity of the of the legal elements of the movie on a scale of one to ten. Is that right? Is that, is that is that how we do it? Yeah, you know, well, you you, I mean, I we, we only get a small glimpse into the into the trials. I wouldn't focus on that, but in terms of what you know about, and look, this is seventy years in the past or sixty years in the past. So, um, life in a, in a penitentiary has sure changed since then. But given what you know about. Um, uh, about that type of um, facility and, and the aftermath, how accurate do you think the portrayal is? Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, I probably don't have enough insight in what day-to-day life is while being incarcerated to judge. All the, all the you know... You're, you're awesome. There's still time. And I mean, Leah, you can remember as a prosecutor, you know, you hear the stories, right? You have an, you have sort of a collection of anecdotes right. and a lot of the things we saw portrayed in this film, somewhere or another, we've heard a version of that taking place. So does it, it, it doesn't seem too far-fetched in terms of, you know, building a rapport with the guards and the warden to have an easier an easier prison sentence, you know, and then the consequences of, of not, you know, all those kinds of things. So shades of the truth. Yeah. All right. Well, that was another extremely illuminating episode of Objection Your Fiction. Now, Tim, thank you so much for joining us. Um, this was super, super fun and, and actually really super interesting to uh, look at a movie that I've I've watched probably 20 to 30 times without exaggeration. Um interesting, interesting and fun to look at it in a new way um, and, and think through some of these things, not just about Andy's uh, potential guilt or innocence, but a lot of these larger, like very important themes that are, that are swirling around kind of in the background of this film. Um, so yeah, appreciate you, you giving us your time and, and talking through these, these issues and um, yeah, really appreciate all the hard work you're doing on this issue as well. Thank you, Lee. Thanks Cooper for having me. And the big takeaway is Andy Dufresne, Guilty. Guilty. Not a good guy, it turns out. No. That's that's the, the shocking ending of this episode of Objection Your Fiction. Everything what? you know about Shawshank Redemption is wrong. Oh, random random employment thing for Shawshank. Uh, he wants to open up a hotel in Mexico, right? On the beach, something like that. He's not going to be able to get a liquor license. You know, that's just another one of those random... You know how you know how to get a liquor license in Mexico? I mean, maybe you don't even need one. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that you do not need a liquor license. I'm guessing license. in Stehuataneo, Mexico, in the 1950s, 1960s. Okay. You're probably you're probably all right. 
What about like, what about uh, the fact that he's uh, probably the most recognizable face in the region and he walks into 12 banks and withdraws massive amounts of money? I guess that the implication is he does it all before they like figure out that he escaped. I, I don't know. So like 17 years later, he's been like away in jail for 17 years or 19 years. Like, you know, and there's the fact that he hasn't aged that much in that period of time. Well, there's TV by then. So you would think that like his face would be plastered on news. And, yeah. I don't know. As, as an escape. I'm willing, I'm willing to, I'm willing to live with that. Yeah. It's not too hey, big. Well, uh, thanks for giving me an excuse to watch Shawshank again. It's been a long time. For more on all things real estate and the law, subscribe to this and our other podcasts. Follow Bergstein, Flynn, Knowlton, and Polina on social media. Subscribe to our newsletter and go to bfklawoffice.com. That's bfklawoffice.com to learn more.